The Tim Heal Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Heal Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to chat with Evan. Evan's going to tell me when and where he's born. He's going to describe what it was like, where he grew up, the schools he went to, and the education that he received. So, Evan, over to you. Well, Tim, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to share a little bit of my story with you and your audience today. Um, to, to start with, I, I'm located currently in Dallas, Texas, uh, here in the United States, and, and this is actually where I was born. So was born here in Dallas, Texas, uh, and pretty uh, nondescript schooling. I grew up and, and went to actually the same school from elementary all the way through uh, the graduation of high school. So it was a single school. Uh, it was a small private school. So it was a little different type of an atmosphere and environment to grow up in. Very academically rigorous. And this is not to say that I was some stud academic or, or had the best <laughs> grades. I was fortunate enough to get in and in first grade uh, when the test really consisted of color shapes and in, in the alphabet and uh, was fortunate enough to just kind of um, uh, progress through my time and, and graduate in a very rigorous uh, school. Upon graduation, I went to university at the University of Colorado. And whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. oh, um <laughs> you you race through from from kindergarten to to, to, to go to university. Oh well, well please let's, ask let's, questions, Tim. I'm I'm an open book. Well, let's let's break it in half, and it says cowboys all the way around for a start. So let's let's just wind it back a bit. Let's have a look at your your elementary school. So I mean, you went to the same school all the way through. So I mean, you didn't need to rush through it that quick. How big was the school? I mean, I mean, Texas is known for being big, wide open spaces and, and everything's bigger than everything else. So, uh, but you went to a small school. How did I that work? Small, I went to a small school and I, and I grew up in a big city. Dallas is, is a pretty big city <laughs> here in the U.S. and just ended up at a smaller school. And so I, I can't recall, I want to say maybe 400 students total from grades mm -hmm. one through 12. Uh, so primarily in the younger ages, you're you're going to school with maybe 35 to 40 kids. Hmm. Well, in a in whole a year. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, in a class. A class. So, yeah. so you've got quite a few in the class then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, so you in, that whole in that whole graduating year, you go through with about 35 to 40. And as you progress through the middle school, uh, the junior high, the high school, they, they add on maybe five to 10 uh, students every year. So by the time I graduated high school, I think I was going to school with about 80 or 90 students. Not all in the same class. Not Sorry, all, in not, the same year. Same so year. So, in the year that so I how many, in my graduation year. Yeah. So how many did you actually have in your classes? So did, uh, very you, small you... classes, probably anywhere from 15 to 25. Oh, that's, that's good. So so because I, I suppose it was academic that they they had the smaller classes so they could concentrate on you uh, as an individual as opposed to sort of got 50 students in front of you and and if if you were struggling you <laughs> you struggled forever because you never got a look in exactly so, yeah so so academically it was quite good then and what what about sports i mean did you have sports there, or obviously of some sort? So we did have. Sounds sports. like you didn't. You didn't have enough kids to go and play football. So if you combine the actual number of high school students that were in the 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 high school grades nine through twelve, we did have enough to field a football team. So in Texas, as you mentioned, there's a lot of huge schools, and Texas mm -hmm. is kind of known for its huge high schools. Uh, and they they compete in different classes, uh, mm. depending on their size. Obviously, we were a private school, so we were separate from the big, gigantic public schools. Uh, yeah. and, and so but in our conference, it was very competitive. Uh, I personally uh, played football and wrestling in my high school career. Uh, I can't, you know, you can, I don't know if it comes through on the video, but, uh, you know, I'm 5'10", maybe 160 pounds soaking wet. 
so I wasn't necessarily the greatest football player. I wasn't the most intimidating, but absolutely loved the game. And and maybe my strength was in the sport of wrestling. Uh, mm. But I, I, I attribute that a lot to the coach that I had on my high school wrestling team. And, and he was really a unique individual in the sense of uh, really holding 15 to 18 year olds to very high standards, instilling mm-hmm. a great discipline, a great work ethic uh, in us. And, and I, and I really attribute a lot of my success as a wrestler to just being in his program and being mm-hmm. in there for four years uh, and, and honestly, early on getting beat up by the older guys uh, and then, you know, <laughs> gradually building up skills and, and becoming yeah. a, a pretty, pretty legitimate wrestler by the time I was a senior. So this is the um, this is the amateur type wrestling. It's not the WWF. Correct. <laughs> yep. Showboating stuff. <laughs> Absolutely none of that. This is the Olympic yeah. style uh, yeah. amateur wrestling. Proper, proper grappling. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so did you did you win any big prizes at that? Did you did you have a big trophy cabinet where you had all your trophies up? Or so the the highlight of my wrestling career was probably uh, wrestling for the state title my senior year. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't win that match, but I still had an opportunity to step on the step on the mat and yeah. compete for a state championship at my weight class. I, I was a little unique. As I mentioned, I was not a very big individual. Mm. And of course, if you weigh 160 pounds for football, you're probably closer to 140 pounds by the time you're yeah. in full swing for wrestling season. Because of the youth of our team, my junior and senior year, I was always wrestling up several weight classes. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't wrestling at the 140 weight, weight pound class. I wasn't wrestling at 145. I was typically wrestling at the 152, 160 pound mm-hmm. weight class. So I was, I was typically giving up a lot of weight to the people that I was wrestling against. Uh, but again, you know, having come from a very great program and, and, and yeah. a tremendous coach, uh, I was able to overcome those weight differences and, and have some success my senior year. So no with, huge with trophies or anything like that, but, but yeah. uh, I, I would say wrestling for the state title was a pretty cool experience personally. Fantastic. So now we can look at maybe moving on to your, <laughs> to graduating. Uh, so, so, yeah, so I graduated and as I'm kind of outlining here, I wasn't necessarily a stellar athlete, but was always interested in sports I went to university at University of Colorado here in the United States uh, and wasn't involved in football or any sports, just kind of was there as a student. And after my first year at university, you know, it was a very different experience because I'm going to a school with 30, 35,000 kids Mm. at the school. uh, And I kind of wanted that after being in a very intimate educational experience my entire life. I wanted more of a uh, a huge public university setting. Uh, but after my first year, as much fun as I had, I felt like I was missing something. Uh, mm. just so what, what did you actually and... start to major in? This, this, this sounds very much like that you had a change of art after your first year. So you, you, uh, you started off in physics. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was necessarily a change of heart. It was just kind of... Uh, you know, in America, it's very typical, I think, for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for kind of, you know, you go to school and you immediately go to college. And I've done some traveling abroad and meeting people from Australia, uh, from from Europe, uh, from, you know, everywhere uh, all over the world in my travels. And that's not very common for a lot of other people. Like it's typical to take a year off after you graduate high school, maybe travel in that time, or or maybe just not go directly into school because quite honestly, at 18, you kind of don't really know what you're doing or or what you want to do. (laughs) I I feel we don't have to get into the whole dynamics of like the American Mm. way of life, but I do feel like that is very much a a societal thing for Americans Uh, ended up uh, going straight into business and I enjoyed it, but I just felt like I was missing something. I'd been involved in sports my whole life. I was kind of missing the competitive aspect of sports. 
And I felt like I wanted to gain that back, um, you know, and I didn't really view myself as a phenomenal athlete. And I was very interested in coaching. So mm -hmm. coaching was kind of the next thing that I was focused on. Uh, that second year at university, I started youth sports coaching. So it started with coaching fourth grade, fifth grade, basketball, soccer teams, uh, and then eventually led me to coaching fourth grade football, uh, which was kind of like my first opportunity to coach football. And about this time was I was I was really kind of contemplating as much as I enjoyed being around sports, that maybe coaching was something that I could potentially pursue after I graduated college. Hmm. So so you made the switch from from, say, business to um, sports so coaching. There was no switch. I, no, I was on a, carried on a business. It was all very, it was all very intertwined. So my mm. education was around business management. So mm -hmm. looking at a lot of dealing with people, managing people, the organizational dynamics of hiring people and uh, attracting people to your organization. And I always equated that to building a team, building a football team specifically. Mm. And so as I was going through my, my college education, I was also very interested in the parallels between business management and managing a football team and building a football team. Uh, and that's where a lot of my passion began for, for coaching. Uh, and yeah. I think also uh, direct, indirectly or maybe directly led to the book that I just recently published uh, last month called Finding Intangibles, which is really all about team building uh, yeah. in professional sports and, and the commonalities that elite performers have. Okay. So what, what did you start doing in the second year? That, that was looking at coaching. And, and, and was was you on a course for that as part of your um there was not there was not a course for that i took a class called critical leadership skills i was fortunate to have a professor in that class that was a tremendous uh influence on me just in terms of not necessarily pushing me to coaching more challenging me to define what success meant mm. uh and as i said you know i think typically in America, you know, we finish high school and a lot of people go to college and then, you know, you kind of sleepwalk your way through college. And then it's like, oh, well now I need to get a job. Okay. Well, you know, now it's like, now I look up 10 years later and okay, now I'm in a job that I may or may not like I'm making money, but I'm making almost like too much money where I can't really go, you know, pursue what it is I really want to do. And I think I was very aware of that dynamic. Uh, as I was going through it and and didn't necessarily want that. So I, I kind mm -hmm. of had this idea that maybe coaching was something that I wanted to pursue. And I think as I was progressing through college, you know, going from fourth grade football to high school in my coaching, it mm -hmm. became very evident that like, okay, I, I think I want to give this a go. I'll be the first to tell you, Tim, I had no idea what being a college coach or a professional coach meant. I didn't know what that lifestyle was like. I didn't even know anybody that was a coach. I just felt like this was something I wanted to do um, and, and felt like something that was very authentic and true to my personality and, and the things that I was passionate about. Okay. So you're majoring in, in business management and you did that. Did you do the whole four year course on that? Did, did you? Yes. Did, so, so four years of doing that, and alongside that, you, you were coaching sort of minor leagues and and, and stuff like that. Was I wouldn't it? even call them minor leagues. I'm coaching youth sports. These are kids. you know the fourth grade football team. The, these kids have never played football before, right? Like you're teaching them how to tackle. Uh, All right. And and just to show you the humble beginnings, we were zero six that year. Uh, we didn't win a game. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but but. It, in fourth grade football, the most important thing is not winning, Tim. It is actually yeah. the pizza party at the end of the year, and we knocked that one out of the park. So um, <laughs> that was actually a success, maybe my most successful yeah. coaching experience. But, you know, from that, that small experience, that led me to coaching high school at the local high school. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and again, like 
much as life, you are building upon all of these experiences. So even though I had no idea what it meant to be a college coach or what that entailed, I was learning, I was reading a lot. I was kind of looking at the people that I looked up to in coaching and trying to emulate them Mm. and making a lot of mistakes too, right? Like I didn't know, I didn't have all the answers and I had nobody I could really turn to, to give me answers. I was kind of figuring Mm -hmm. out on my own. Um, And after I graduated from college, I I started looking for college football jobs. Uh, And that led me to kind of the next chapter of my life, which was really my, my journey as a professional and college football coach. Mm. So just, just going back to your, your college course, I mean, Colorado, I mean, that's a little bit away from Texas, um, and it's a lot higher, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereabouts in Colorado was it? So it's located in Boulder, Colorado. And that's which up is in great, the mountains, isn't it? Great, yeah, great college town. It's in a mountain valley, uh, right at the foot of the Flat Hot Flat Irons mountain range in Boulder, Colorado. It's an absolutely unbelievable place. Loved my time there and met some of my closest friends there and always had the vision that I was going to return as the head football coach. That was kind of my North star, if you will. Mm. So my whole career was really geared towards being the the head coach at the university of Colorado at some point in the future. So if you, if you've got a massive college like that with 30 30 odd thousand students. How many football teams did they have? Because I mean, there's only a finite amount of football players you can have on one team. And I guess an awful lot of guys that that were coming through wanted to go and play rug, uh, play football. Yeah. And I apologize, Tim. I don't know how it's structured in the UK, but in America, if you're competing at the college level, there's only one team. So, and this is big money college sports. Yeah. Uh, college football is probably one of the most popular sports in America. And there's one team and every big time university that competes at that level has one team. Uh, mm-hmm. So there, there's not multiple teams. It's not like high school where you can field as many teams as you want. Uh, these, these players are being recruited sometimes from all over the nation, depending on the school to come play very, very high level athletics. And, you know, it's essentially a prep league for being a professional. Yeah. Okay. I get that. So uh, there's only what, is it nine ninety three that you can, you're allowed on the team. Is it somebody like around about that number? Uh, well, there's different rules and we don't have to get into the semantics, but basically yeah. you can have 85 scholarship players at one point in time. Uh, yeah. And I would probably say in my experience, teams typically have anywhere from 120 to 125 players at one time. Mm. So they got a fairly big pool to, to draw from. Um, and I guess the, the absolute best, uh, the best get to play and, and, those those that don't make the mark <laughs> don't even get go and go go and sit on the bleachers. You <laughs> go, yeah. go and join the cheerleaders. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I mean it's a meritocracy, right? Like, yeah. um, if I'm a coach, my job is to win, and if I don't win, I get fired, and that's the mm. that's really kind of what it comes down to. So, it's there's no feelings typically that are involved. Uh, the best mm. players are going to play because you want to win not only so that you keep your job, but in hopes of also getting other job offers and, and maybe yeah. leaving for more money or leaving for a place that, that you really want to go to. It's a real doggy dog existence, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's extremely competitive. It's, it's, uh, I, I mean, you are competing against the absolute best of your age group. And, mm. and as I said, like these are players that are going to be playing in the, in the NFL soon. Uh, the best of the best. So, you know, it's very competitive, but it's also very competitive in the coaching ranks as well. Um, It's not quite the meritocracy that it is on the field. Uh, There's a lot of politics at play. There's a lot of who you are related to or who you played for. And that's just the nature of the beast. 
Uh, and that's what, what makes my story unique is that I don't have a typical story of a football coach. I didn't play college football and I didn't have a dad that was an NFL executive or a college coach that I could lean on his network or any family members network. Uh, I had to build it all on my own. And, um, yeah. and I think that's kind of, uh, you know, again, that's, that's where the story gets really interesting. Okay. Let's start to explore that then. So you've, you graduated college. Um, what would say? What was your major in, and and did you do well at it? Yeah, I mean, like, quite honestly, Tim, like my major was business management. Like I mentioned before, I don't even yeah. remember what my grade point average was. It doesn't really matter um, <laughs> because, like, once I made this decision, it's like, okay, well, no coach is going to say, "Let me see your transcript." Uh, mm. They don't even care if you've graduated. Um, I yeah. did, but like it kind of, and I think this is true in life, like the gra like graduating from college most of the time. Now, if you are a lawyer or a doctor, uh, yeah. you know, hopefully if you're hiring a CPA or, or, you know, somebody doing your taxes, you, you want to make sure they, they probably had good grades. <laughs> it probably matters then. Doing, but I think yeah. for a lot of, I think for a lot of people, like they're not even studying what they're going to go do in life mm. or in business or in their professional ranks. So it really doesn't matter what you did. All it matters is, were you able to complete? Yeah. Were you able to go through four years uh, and, and complete the degree? Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the way I look at it. Okay. So let's, let's, let's get into it. So you, you've, you've, you've left, You've left college, and what was your first job? Yeah, my first job was I was an ops volunteer at SMU, Southern Methodist University, which is a Division One school here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, was very fortunate to get a get a job in college football, coaching at the school. Uh, that was five minutes from where I grew up. It, it would, didn't happen that way for any other reason than me just kind of sending out 120 letters to every Division One school and nobody replying to me and me picking up the phone and calling the coaches of the schools here in the, the Dallas, Texas area mm. and saying that I was going to be home. I was still living in Colorado. I said, I'm going to be home in February. I'd love to come by and see you. Uh, and two of those coaches at, at other schools told me not to come by. Like, they didn't want to see me. They didn't have job openings for me. But the, the coach at SMU, uh, you know, invited me up to his office. We sat there and talked. He said, hey, we're going to have a job, but it's not open yet. And I don't know when it's going to be open. And you're going to have to be here every single day. You're going to have to be working the coach's hours. You're going to be passing out Chick-fil-A's. You're going to travel with us and do bed checks. You're going to be here all the time doing football. Uh, and I think he was doing it to try and scare me away, but it really <laughs> excited me. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is exactly what I want. Uh, and he goes, oh, and we're not going to pay you. And I was like, I don't care. I'm going to stay at grandma and grandpa's pool house. It's going to be fine. <laughs> and um, was really fortunate. And and he didn't give me that job. He just told me about that job. Mm. Uh, but I, I remember I met him. Obviously, this is probably early February. I so went back to Colorado. Excuse me. So the season's over by then, isn't it? Or is it just starting for the college? Well, this it's. I mean, the season had just ended, but they're already prepping for the next season. And so I'm reaching out to all these schools. I'm trying to find a job, uh, and he's the only Division One coach I've ever talked to and that I know. And and ended up, I just called him every two weeks. Hey, Coach Hyatt, this is Evan Burke. I, I'm from Boulder. I came and visited you in early. Oh, yeah, I, I remember, Evan. You've called me every two weeks for the last three months. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Coach, I just wanted to check in with you and see if you had given this uh, volunteer job away. I'm really interested in it. And, uh, of course, I the he had told me no every single time. Mm -hmm. But I had been, obviously, talking to other schools, other coaches, and I'd, I'd had a couple of job offers from other schools uh, and so once I'd gotten those two job offers, the next time I called them, I said, Hey, do you have that volunteer job open? No, Evan, we're focused on all this other stuff. I don't know when we're going to look at that. Uh, and, and I kind of said, Hey, coach Hyatt, like you're the only division one coach. I know I want to be a division one coach. And I have these two job offers. One's at a high school and one is at a, a lower level college and, and it's a volunteer job. 
And uh, he goes, well, if you want to be a college coach, you need to be in college. So if you're asking me for my advice, I'd say take the college Mm -hmm. job. So I was like, coach, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't work out, but I I will certainly reach out to you after the season (laughs) and whatever, whatever. And he goes, hey, wait, uh, when are you coming back to Dallas? Uh, I'll be there in like three weeks. I'm coming back for my sister's something, something. Oh, okay, great. Why don't you come by and see me when you come back in town? So uh, said, okay, sure. And and by the way, I'm 22 years old. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and I I accept the job at the lower level school in Colorado. I go back three weeks later. I go back to Dallas. I go see Coach Hyatt. And as soon as I walk in the door, he walks me into the head coach's office. They tell me, hey, what goes on here stays here. Okay, like you don't tell anybody about what you see here. You're expected to work hard, work every day. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And they're like, okay, you know, go see Coach Hyatt. And I walk out the door and it's like nobody's even telling me anything, right? They're just speaking to me in all these like, <laughs> you know, vague uh, statements. And Coach Hyatt's like handing, you know, he's handing me like the, the schedule and he's like, okay, Evan, like we need you back here on June 15th. That's going to be our Mustang camp. And, we're gonna... and I'm like, whoa, 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 Coach, like what's happening? What are you talking about? He goes, what do you mean? What are we talking? Like, we're hiring you for the position. You won't leave me alone about we're hiring you. And, uh, you know, again, I'm 22. I have no idea what's happening. Yeah. You know, oh, my God. Oh, this is exactly what I wanted. Yes. Uh, but I'd already accepted that other job uh, and, um, you know, ended up uh, obviously resigning that job. That, that coach yeah. at, that, at that school, that lower level school was amazing. He was very cool about it. I was very worried he was going to yell, scream, be upset. And, uh, he understood, you know, uh, um, so that was really yeah. neat. And, and that started a four year journey, um, as a, like I said, ops intern, passing out Chick-fil-A's making copies, uh, all of the glamorous things that you imagine when you want to yeah. be a, a college football coach for your career. Uh, and I got to do all those things at SMU and, and was fortunate also that I got to progress every single year, uh, in my career. So I was working in ops one year. I was working in video and recruiting the next year. I was working on offense the next year. I was working on defense. And so by the end of my time at SMU, after four years, not only had I uh, gotten my master's degree, but I had also had the opportunity to work in every facet of an NFL or excuse me, on a, at a high level college organization. Yeah. And of course, I'm soaking it all up. I'm, I'm taking notes because I'm preparing for my opportunity in 10 years to be the head coach at the University of Colorado. Uh, and so it was a tremendous experience, both professionally to, to get all those experiences and to learn so much from so many great coaches and also personally being close to home and, and being in a situation where I wasn't completely by myself exploring a new profession that quite honestly was extremely challenging. I had family very close, close by mm-hmm. close to me that I was able to kind of lean on for some, some emotional support and, um, and cheap it's digs, nice no to thing. have them around and, and cheap digs. Yes. So we <laughs> just stopping me your parents. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, you brought it up and I kind of alluded to it. So <laughs> I stayed at my grandparents' pool house uh, for four years um, mm. and, uh, you know, was very fortunate that that they had that pool house and that I was able to, to kind of have that opportunity mm. because I wasn't making any money to start with. I was making yeah. nothing. Uh, and then my I think when I became a grad assistant, I was making something like $700 a month. So Hmm. my uh, standard of living would have been very poor had, Hmm. had I not been from Dallas. So in a lot of respects, I was very lucky and fortunate to kind of, I was fortunate enough to get that opportunity at a big time school and everything that came from that, the learning experiences, the network, the everything that came from that, that was very fortunate and then mm-hmm. I guess in another sense, just as fortunate to be literally five minutes from where I grew up, the yeah. familiarity of being here in Dallas, Texas, in a big city. And as you mentioned, and as I'm kind of telling you, you know, to have that support system where, mm-hmm. yeah, like I didn't have, uh, I didn't have to pay rent for four years, uh, which I wasn't making any money. So that was extremely helpful at the time. Yeah. So, so how did the team do? 
over that uh, four team, years. So, uh, where, for, where for did any, they sit in the table? Yeah, and if your audience is is mainly uh, UK audience, you may not be familiar. Oh, but SMU, no, no, no. I, I, I've got I've got a worldwide with audience. Well, so for for those that aren't familiar, the SMU football team in the early yeah. 1980s was one of the best football teams in college football. Uh, there was a span, I think, from 1980 to 1984, SMU, this small private school in Dallas, Texas, won more football games than any school in the nation. And uh, it came out shortly thereafter that this amazing period of success for the SMU football team uh, was attributed a lot to a, a paying a payment scandal that they were paying players, which at the time was illegal in the NCAA. <laughs> and uh, they didn't get caught for it once. They got caught for it multiple times. It was a, uh, it was a huge scandal in, in terms of college football and they were handed the death penalty. And they're one mm. of the only schools in all of uh, NCAA history and collegiate sports to be handed down this death penalty. And it essentially suspends the program you lose all of your scholarships and you can't play in the postseason for a certain number of years uh and so smu was never able to rebound from that uh, i think they started playing again in 1986 or 1987 and uh it was just a string of 25 30 losing seasons in a row so the year i showed up 2006 uh the team was pretty good kind of good and uh, that team went six and six. So they didn't quite get over the hump of having a winning season. Mm. But we also didn't get a, a postseason bid, uh, which they hadn't had since that death penalty. Yeah. And um, the next year we were one and 11. That whole coaching staff got fired. And I was fortunate where they had told, you know, coaches they're obviously on big contracts they're told okay at the uh, you know after the season you have three days to clear out your desk and you need to be yeah. out of here by tuesday <clears throat> november 30th or whatever uh well i wasn't one of those full-time coaches i'm a young coach i'm a grad assistant and uh everybody had to leave the office except for the secretary the the operations director and myself and mm. and so for about six weeks before they hired their next coach, it there was nobody in the office. It was just me and, and a couple other people. So we were handling a lot of different things. And then nobody told me to go home. And they kept putting checks in my account. So I didn't say anything. I didn't ask if I, like, am I supposed to leave too? Everybody, everybody I know in college football just got fired. Am I supposed to go? Nobody said anything to me. I kept showing up, kept getting checks in my account. The next coaching staff shows up and I just kind of operated as if like, oh, I'm just part of I'm just part of this new house you got. Like, don't worry about me. I'm just here. I'm just here in the background. Yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, I was doing a lot of things, too, to kind of try and make myself valuable, try and make myself useful to the, the, those new coaches that were showing up and, um, you know, ended up not only being retained, but being promoted into an on the field coaching role in 2008. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately that first year, that new coaching staff, we were one and 11 again. So you asked how we did, uh, we were probably the worst team in America in division one college football in 2007 and the 2008 season. I mean, we were very bad. And, uh, but what was cool about my experience was that second coaching staff that had come in, those were coaches that had had success before a lot of NFL experience on those coaching on that coaching staff. Mm -hmm. And they were able to start building a culture, a winning culture with the SMU Mustang football team uh, that even though we went one and 11 in 2008, we had kind of started to, to understand what it took to win. Yeah. And anytime you're trying to turn around a losing situation, whether you're in a business that's been, been losing for an extended period of time or a sports team, like you can't just walk in the room and say, Hey guys, we need to win on the road. Yeah. You guys need to do the things you're supposed to do to win. <laughs> like they don't know how to win. Yeah. They don't know how to win. There is no road mentality on this team because we haven't won a road game in five years. You need to oh. teach that from the ground up and literally from the ground up. So we were trying to do things in that first year even though we weren't successful on the field, we were playing very close games. We were very competitive. Mm. We had to learn how to practice. Uh, yeah. We had to learn what were the type of habits, what are the winning habits?
habits, right? Like I think a lot of times in coaching and I've seen this in my career, it's like, guys, we need to do this. Like we need to do, and then coaches like insert some type of result mm -hmm. or some type of outcome. Like we need to be the toughest team on the field. And I don't think a lot of coaches actually reverse engineer that like, that doesn't mean anything. It sounds great in a soundbite for, yeah. you know, a podcast or a show yeah. or a documentary, uh, but it doesn't good, mean, good speech, but it doesn't, it's got no meat to it. It's it, got means, no it means absolutely yeah. nothing. It's really just hollow words. And so like what I was able to see firsthand was a coaching staff that knew what they were doing, that knew how to build a winning culture and didn't just stand in front of the team and say, hey, guys, we're going to have a winning culture here. They stood mm -hmm. in front of the team and were saying, hey, guys, uh, like you don't know how to win, but we do know how to win. And if you do what we tell you to do, those that stay are going to win. And so yeah. they started this process of just teaching. Like It sounds crazy, but just teaching – and again, we're talking about 18, 22 year old yeah. athletes, like teaching them how to sit in a meeting room, teaching them how yeah. to take notes. Like we broke it down that, that simply, uh, we mm. had what we called high performance habits. Um, and, and strangely enough, not strangely enough. I mean, it makes sense. These are the habits that I teach in my own executive coaching. And when I speak, to companies. And when I speak at conferences, these are the same things that I talk about, the same things that we taught that SMU football team in 2008, uh, leading into that 2009 season, again, my fourth year at SMU, but the second year of that coaching staff, everything had flipped, right? Like all those, all those close games that we had lost the year before, what we didn't see is that like we were slowly building these habits, these winning habits. Mm -hmm. and, and in 2009, everything started to click. All those close games we lost in 2008 turned into wins in 2009. And so that team was a really special team because it was the first team since the death penalty in SMU's yeah. football history that had not only had a winning season, but also went to a bowl game. And we had a huge win in the Hawaii Bowl that year, uh, we won like 45 to 10 over over Nevada uh, and, and just a really special experience. And particularly for me, having been there four years, having had the chance to 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 get my yeah, graduate degree, to be close to home and then to kind of have it all culminate in the Hawaii Bowl was something really special. Hmm. So that gave you the, the result um, at the end of the season then. So. Why did you leave after four years if you if you had had a successful season? Well, this is the life of a coach. This is the way coaching works. You're typically not anywhere for more than two or three seasons. If you are, that's pretty abnormal, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the reason why I left, quite honestly, is I went into the head coach's office in December of 2009. And I said, hey, coach, um, I'm about to finish my grad degree. And I can string it out till next season. And if I do that, like I can stay here another year. And mm -hmm. he said, Oh, I've already hired your replacement. So it was pretty oh. simple. Uh, thanks so, for telling us. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for telling me. So I kind of <laughs> took that. And I'll be honest with you, I was pretty down. I was pretty discouraged mm. for about 24 hours. Uh, and different adversity and failures that we have in life uh, warrant longer times of grief times of uh being upset or maybe like just sulking on the couch with a pizza and and ice cream however yeah. you cope with that um but i have a general rule it not being you know a devastating emer personal emergency or family emergency that any type it's okay to feel bad uh, but after 24 hours like yeah. you got to get up and go so I didn't really give myself any time. I gave myself about maybe I say 24 hours. I probably gave myself about 16 hours to feel bad about myself. And I remember, cause like that happened an afternoon in one afternoon. And I remember the next evening I had already come up with a plan of like, okay, I'm going to go to the NFL and uh, I don't know anybody in the NFL. So how am I going to do that? Okay. This is going to be my plan to go to the NFL. Um, and essentially my, my, my plan was I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. I didn't play in the NFL. So I was going to find wherever I could connections to people that I did know 
that had connections in the NFL. And I was going to write them a handwritten letter. So I made a spreadsheet and it basically kind of outlined everything from every coach I had coached with and where they had coached from 1970 to 2009. And then after I had made that, I had made a, uh, on that same spreadsheet, I had made a timeline for every employee that I could find in the NFL. Uh, so every team, I probably did this for 30 or 40 people, right? Like listing out where they had coached from 1970 yeah. to 2009. And I basically just started to cross-reference. So if I saw a coach that I knew that I worked with that coached with another coach, let's just say for the Dallas Cowboys, I wrote that coach a letter. Hey, Coach Smith says great things about you. I'm going to be at the Senior Bowl. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to get your advice on getting a job in the NFL. And uh, that ended up being 450 handwritten letters that I wrote uh, to every employee that I had a connection to in the NFL. And um, the reason I That must have cost you an absolute fortune in stamps. Uh, that is a, a, an astute observation, Tim. Here is the catch. I was working for a huge university. So wow. I could write all my handwritten letters on their letterhead. I could grab the envelopes out of the mailroom. Actually, uh, at this point in time of my journey, I was actually coaching. Or I was actually officing out of the mailroom <laughs> at the football office. <laughs> and so I just grabbed the envelopes. And guess what? There's just a huge bin right next to the yeah. door that you just throw your letters in. And, and it just gets taken care of. You don't have to pay for it, right? Well, Nobody's paying for it. I don't know well, who's paying well, for it, yeah. but I didn't pay for it. And but, so I wrote all those letters all on well, oh, yeah, go ahead. Payment in kind for payment those early kind. years there. That's that's what yeah. it was, payment in kind. <laughs> so um, I, I did that because I I felt a handwritten letter would be more likely to be responded right. to than a, yeah. just a typed letter. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's amazing when you have like a strong vision of what you want to accomplish that you can go through a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of risk take, um, mm -hmm. but also the rejection, right? Like you're not getting, I'm writing 450 letters, Tim. I think I got 12 responses and I would count a response as anything that was like a personal, whether yeah. it was an email, I got some phone calls. I got some people reaching out and like asking me to apply or interview for jobs. Anything that was personal, I considered an actual response. I didn't mm -hmm. consider a, you know, form letter thanking me for my letter mm. as a response. Uh, so I got 12 of those responses. Uh, uh, of those 12, three ended up leading to interviews. And uh, one of those interviews ended up landing me a job with the Miami Dolphins. And, uh, you know, when I reached out to you initially, I kind of told you that I had a, a, an extraordinary story. And yeah. I kind of think my, my journey from fourth grade football to the NFL um, is a little extraordinary just from the, the sense that I'm not a typical football yeah. coach and I didn't play and um, I, I didn't have any type of professional network in the professional mm -hmm. ranks. And, and yet I was still able to access these people and, and get into the room, as they say. So come on, Miami Dolphins. Who was the coach at the time? Tony Sperano was the coach at the time. Mm -hmm. And who was so your, your was star under, quarterback? He was uh, – the quarterback at the time was Chad Pennington and Chad Henney. Hmm. So what job did you get? Was, was you just a water boy or did you actually get a, a role of, uh, as a coach? Close. Very close, Tim. I started as a video intern. And my attitude was to do exactly what I did at the NFL – or excuse me – did at SMU in the NFL. I was going to get in. I was going to start however I could. And I was just going to gradually build on one success and have that lead into the next one and, and gradually build. Uh, it was a little more difficult because the NFL, it's a very, very, I don't want to say secretive. I mean, I was in a Bill mm -hmm. Parcells organization. So it was like, nobody knew who I was. They weren't very open to me helping in any sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was just kind of, um, it was a little challenging. 
coming in, not having any connection, me being a a quote unquote video guy, but trying to explain how I was really trying to be a coach and I can help them with things. They didn't really know what Mm -hmm. to do with me. Uh, But first week of the preseason, and I've been bugging these coaches the whole, you know, six months leading up to Mm -hmm. the preseason. Can I help you with this? Can I do anything? And then um, the special teams coordinator gave me an assignment. Hey, yeah, you want to help me? watch all of Tampa Bay's punt rushes from last year and draw them up. Uh, yes, sir. So uh, I didn't take that as like, Hey, give them to me in a week. I hmm. stayed there till 1130 that night from, so from probably like two o'clock in the afternoon to 1130 at night, I watched all whatever it was, 150, hmm. 160 plays from the previous season, drew them all up on a computer And it was almost like all of the things that I had done at SMU had kind of like led to this moment, right? Like when I started SMU, Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to use Playmaker Pro, which was the software program that you use to kind of drop football plays. I didn't know how to discern a a certain type of stunt or or a certain Mm -hmm. type of movement on film. Uh, I learned all of that at SMU over my four years there. I didn't know how to kind of put together a, 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 report for coaches uh, that makes it easy for them to read that they can review in in literally seconds i learned all that at smu so it kind of led to this one singular moment where i'd been bugging these coaches for anything i could do to help them during this time that they were just kind of like ignoring me and like this first assignment as i said i stayed there for whatever 10 12 hours working on it uh, and then I walked upstairs and the, the special teams coordinator was still there with his assistant, you know, just to give you uh, the audience an idea. That's that's mm-hmm. the hours that coaches work. Um, and I walked in the door and I said, hey, coach, I just want to give this to you. He goes, what is this? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, coach, that's those are the punt rushes you asked for earlier today. You already went through all this. This is them sat there, flipped through it, took maybe about 10 seconds. He goes, OK, this is great. Here's what we can get working on tomorrow. And so we've made a little list on his board, on his whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's what we're going to like, here's what we're going to get working on. And so I was really fortunate because that one opportunity led to working with those guys behind the scenes and the nature of the fo- of pro- professional football and any competitive industry is that, you know, you're not really afforded a lot of opportunities to, to make mistakes or, Sometimes it may not even be your mistake. It can be a player's yeah. mistake, but you take the blame for it. And unfortunately, that coach was let go eight weeks into that season. Uh, mm. But what that did was they elevated that assistant. And when that happened, uh, even though nobody knew that I was kind of working behind the scenes with this with these guys, uh, when it came time to kind of fill that assistance role that had just been promoted, they they promoted me into that role. So I was really lucky in terms of my mm. opportunity there. And but but you know I think obviously I tell this story a lot when I'm speaking or, or in in any work that I'm doing with individuals or or high level teams. Uh, you know taking advantage of every opportunity and, and being resilient and persistent. Um, with both hands. And you just don't know where your opportunity is going to come from and, mm. and where it's going to show itself. So bring us a little bit more up to date. Where are you now? Who, how many teams have you um, coached for? How many jobs have you had in the NFL? Yeah, so I worked that job uh, with Miami Dolphins. And then from there, I went to McMurray University, which is a lower level college here in Texas. And then I worked at UCLA. Um, after a couple of years at UCLA, I I decided I didn't want to coach anymore. I didn't want to do the, the 30 years in front of me of moving every two to three years. And I, and, and quite honestly, I mentioned earlier how my North star was being the head coach at the university of Colorado. And that no longer was my North star. It no longer drove me. And that's kind of how I knew it had always driven me. It had always gotten me through any type of adversity or low moments I'd ever had. And it stopped doing that at the end of the 2015 season. So after that season, I left coaching, and uh, as I've been kind of alluding to, now I work as a speaker. 
and, and as a coach, and I work primarily with performance-driven teams and individuals and leaders. Uh, so mm -hmm. anybody that works in a highly competitive environment, um, typically speaking, whether it's keynotes or workshops, and, and I also yeah. design and deliver uh, development programs, um, you know, based on building out specific skills, yeah. uh, pursuant to, to high performance. So anything from just the high performance habits I mentioned earlier, uh, yeah. to, to mindset. Um, and, and that's what I really love to do now is kind of use the same strategies and, and practices and habits from my coaching career and, and use those with the clients and the, and the teams and the, and the corporate organizations that I work with now. And I also just finished, uh, I just published my first book called Finding mm. Intangibles. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a lot about my coaching experience and, and how winning teams are built. Uh, specifically, what are the character traits that drive all elite performers and championship teams? Uh, yeah. and, and as I mentioned, that's, that's called Finding Intangibles and it's available on Amazon right now. Mm. Did, you ever get, did you ever get a team to the Super Bowl? No. <laughs> in in a word. <laughs> no. So what 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 was your highest position uh, or that you did on the team? So uh did, did you make the, the highest coach? level that I had was a yeah, special teams coordinator, recruiting coordinator, uh and and wide receivers coach. Hmm. Brilliant. So did was it just the Miami Dolphins, that the NFL that you played with or, or was coached with, or did you go to any other um, NFL teams? Or did you just go back down to college teams? Yeah, the uh, Miami Dolphins was my NFL experience. And then I uh, primarily was involved in college for my mm -hmm. career. And uh, since then, you know, have worked with several uh, pro organizations and college programs. And, um, you know, I don't know if the audience is familiar with professional esports, but I was also involved in professional esports. So, um, worked with, worked with one of their professional teams in the Overwatch League and, uh, have done some work with UCLA and a number of other college programs as well. Hmm. So that brings us right up to date. That's right up to date. Yeah. So, uh, like yeah. I mentioned, my book is kind of the thing that I'm, I'm focused on now and, and speaking on my book. And, yeah. uh, I also have a podcast, uh, the highest level podcast, uh, which kind of examines the intersection of leadership and sports. Yeah. And so typically interviewing athletes and coaches and, and team executives on, on what makes championship teams.